Let me read some quotes to you about, from some people that you might recognize and what they have said historically about the book of Revelation. Thomas Paine, the 18th century American philosopher and revolutionary, said of Revelation, it's a book of riddles that requires a revelation to explain it. George Bernard Shaw, the famous Irish playwright, he said, Revelation, a curious record of the visions of a drug addict. All right. Frederick Nietzsche, got to throw in some Nietzsche. He said of Revelation, it's the most rabid outburst of vindictiveness of all recorded history. He wasn't a, he wasn't a very strong Christian. Jack Sanders, you've probably not heard of Jack Sanders. He was, he passed away a couple of years ago, but he was a New Testament scholar and head of the Department of Religious Studies at the University of Oregon for over 30 years before retiring in 2002. He said, or he called Revelation a retreat from ethical responsibility such that its existence and its place in the canon are in the fullest sense of the word, evil. So go University of Oregon. (laughs) Not going to be getting my theology degree from the University of Oregon. No offense, ducks. Okay. Martin Luther. Let's, Let's go to Luther, shall we? He said... Now, this is what he wrote in his early years. If, anything, if, any, if you know anything about Martin Luther, his theology and attitudes changed quite drastically as he continued in his life. But he wrote in his early years, Revelation is neither apostolic nor prophetic. I can in no way detect that the Holy Spirit produced it. They are supposed to be blessed who keep what is written in this book, and yet no one knows what that is, to say nothing much less of keeping it. Christ is neither taught nor known in it. That's Luther for you. And John Calvin, the great Calvinist reformer. That was a joke. Uh, (laughs) He said nothing. Interestingly, he was the only, Revelation is the only book in the New Testament that John Calvin did not write a commentary on. Makes you wonder. So, however you feel about Revelation, I, I think you, you certainly must fall someplace on hopefully the other end of the spectrum. Um, but I'm wanting to simply make the point that historically, Revelation has absolutely been one of these books that, that Christians and thinkers and philosophers and even great reformers have really wrestled with. Um, And so we need to approach this book uh, with quite a bit of humility and hopefully an expectation, an eagerness and an expectation that God will help us. Because in fact, and Luther, of course, later on in his life did go on to change his thinking on the book, Christ is core, essential, primary, right in the middle of virtually every page of Revelation. And those who read it are absolutely blessed because within its pages we find King Jesus, our living King, revealed in many, many ways. So, ready or not, shall we begin? 
Revelation chapter 1. This morning we're going to cover the first eight verses. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Verse 4. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail or mourn on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, won't you come and be our teacher now? Won't you help us to see what John saw? Won't you open up the eyes of our hearts that we might receive the things that you would say to us today. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I want to answer three questions this morning. Number one, what is this book? What is Revelation? Number two, how do we read Revelation? And thirdly, and probably most importantly, why? Why are we reading this book today? So this is the prologue that we just read, the first eight verses. It's the prologue uh, or the the prologos, the pre-word, the word before the word. So this is the message before the message. This is John's way, John the seer who won, the one who had the vision and then he wrote it down to be shared with the seven churches in Asia. This is his way of setting the stage Before we get into the actual vision, the actual what he saw, the letters themselves, he's wanting to qualify everything that he's about to say that we might read it well. So this is the prologue that we've just read. What is Revelation? Um, Let's go to the next slide, please. What are we reading? The next slide. This is what we're reading. An apocalyptic prophecy in the form of a circular letter to the seven churches in the ancient Roman province of Asia. This is what we've just been told simply in the first couple of verses of the letter. 
an apocalyptic prophecy in the form of a circular letter to the seven churches in the ancient Roman province of Asia. Let's begin with revelation or apocalypsis. That's the Greek word that's translated as revelation. Revelation is literally translated an apocalypse. An apocalypse uh, literally means in the biblical sense an unveiling or a revealing, a pulling back of the veil from what would otherwise remain unseen or invisible. It's an unveiling. It's a revelation. It's an apocalypse. It's not Hollywood's end of the world zombie screen play book that we all have read popular novels about. Okay, now I know some of us, we, we like Revelation because it's got like dragons and beasts and like weird psychedelic things. Um, but it's a specific ancient genre that's being utilized to communicate something profound about Jesus. And that ancient genre is apocalypse. We are reading an apocalypse. Apocalyptic writings are their own uh, particular ancient literary genre. Other biblical examples would include Daniel, Ezekiel, Zechariah. Um, in the New Testament, Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21. So it's a particular literary genre that's utilized at different places in the Bible at different times. There are five distinct features of this particular genre that we would do very well to keep in mind as we progress through the letter. They are, number one, apocalyptic literature uses extremely vivid imagery meant not to merely impart information, but to help us experience what, in the case of Revelation, John experienced Meaning apocalyptic language is emotive language. The beauty of the apocalyptic genre isn't that we're just being given information or data about God. We're being drawn in to experience something that the seer, John, experienced for himself. That's why the imagery is so vivid and evocative. Secondly, Within the apocalyptic genre, humans are most often referred to as or described as animals, such as a lion, a lamb, or a beast. Historical events are often represented by natural phenomena. Uh, for example, the fall of a government may be described as a massive earthquake. So humans are described as animals, historical events are represented by natural phenomena, and thirdly, numbers and words are not always, but often symbolic. In Revelation specifically, numbers are quite often used symbolically, with the most frequent number being used, the number seven. See it everywhere, I think it's mentioned something like 55 times throughout the book. Um, the actual literary structure of Revelation, the book itself, is actually divided into seven sections, which is quite helpful. We're not just reading these separate sort of linear accounts 
of events that took place or will take place. The actual structure of the book itself is meant to communicate something to the reader theologically. The seven uh, sections are the vision of the seven churches, the vision of the seven seals, the vision of the seven trumpets, the vision of the seven agents, the vision of the seven bowls, the vision of the harlot city, and the vision of the heavenly city. Those are the, the seven sections that make up the outline of the book of Revelation. It'll help us. It'll set us on a right trajectory in interpreting, interpreting the book theologically. And then finally, this is the fifth distinct feature of the apocalyptic genre, and that is apocalyptic literature seeks to uncover, as I've already said. The nature of the genre itself is meant to un unveil something or to reveal what would otherwise remain invisible. Meditating on the words of Revelation is meant to open the eyes of our hearts, to see what God sees, to view our lives and the world around us, not merely from God's perspective, but with God in sight. Amen. That we might see and hear and perceive his presence, the Holy Spirit, Christ with us, as he is present and will be present in fullness when he comes again. As we're reading through this book, we're meant to actually see as God sees, not merely from his perspective, but with God himself in sight. He's here, he's present, he's working, he is powerful, he is faithful, he is King Jesus, he is here. So it's an apocalypse. Secondly, it's a prophecy. What do we mean by prophecy? Well, it says in verse three, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. So you could say it's an apocalyptic prophecy. It's a revelation that is prophecy. Virtually all prophetic books in the Bible do three things, generally speaking. So as we're reading this as a prophetic book, it does number one, Every prophecy in the Bible sees the sin of a society. So if you go back to the Old Testament, for example, when the prophets are writing to the children of God, Israel, typically they're addressing a problem. God's people have lost their way. They've, uh, they've forgotten the faithfulness of God, Yahweh, and they've turned to other gods, other idols, if you will. And so the prophet will come onto the scene saying, guys, you're, you're sinning. What you're doing is bad. It's wrong. God is faithful. You are not. And so they point out the sin of society. Number two, they challenge the people to change and to return to God in faith. They say change. They call the people to repentance. Stop doing what you're doing and come back to God. And thirdly, the prophets, they paint a vivid picture showing, number one, what the blessings of God will look like if they do, in fact, change and turn back, or conversely, what judgment will look like if they refuse. This is what prophetic books do. You want me to repeat those three? Okay. Number one, the prophets see the sin of the society 
and they communicate it. They call it out. Number two, they challenge the people to change and turn to faith once again in God. And number three, they paint a vivid picture showing what the blessings of God will look like if, in fact, they do turn back, or conversely, what judgment will look like if they refuse. Generally speaking, this is what prophecy in the Bible does. Prophecy in the Bible is virtually never merely a foretelling of future events. Sometimes it involves that. Oftentimes it may involve that. But it's not merely that. As Gary Brashears, my seminary advisor, says, quote, prophets often give God's perspective on the present with a look to the future to build hope as well as to show what will happen if or when God judges. Often not pretty. So it's an apocalyptic prophecy in the form of a circular letter to the seven churches in the ancient Roman province of Asia. It's apocalypse, it's prophecy, and it's also a letter. This is important. We see this in verses four through about five. In fact, you may or may not have caught it, but there's, there's, a, there's a couple of verses there that are actually the standard format for the ancient sort of introduction of a letter. You see it most clearly in all of Paul's epistles. So the Apostle Paul wrote a bunch of letters in the New Testament. They're all to various churches, and they essentially all begin the same way. Grace and peace to you. From God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. John, his introduction or his intro to the letter is actually very Trinitarian. In fact, the book of Revelation is just, just soaked with Trinitarian theology. He says, grace and peace to you from God the Father, the seven spirits who are before the throne of God, and Jesus Christ the Son. Now, the seven spirits is probably uh, a great example of how the number seven is being used in the apocalyptic sense. Remember, the apocalyptic genre is typically using numbers not as quantities, but for theological significance. So the number seven in the Revelation throughout all scripture is the number for perfection, or completeness, rather. Ten is perfection, seven is completion. So when he says the seven spirits, he's not talking about, he's not saying the Holy Spirit is broken into seven pieces. He's saying grace and peace to you from God the Father and from the whole Holy Spirit, the complete Spirit, the full Spirit, and Jesus Christ, the Son. It's a Trinitarian greeting. It's a letter in the sense that he's writing to real people. Now, this may be an obvious point, but it's subtle and it's very, very important. He's actually writing to real first century people. Churches, seven of them specifically, that all existed in the first century in the Roman province of Asia. Which means that there is a historic context to the apocalyptic imagery that John utilizes in this letter. So when the symbols and the visions and the, the, the different pictures 
that John is utilizing throughout this letter, these aren't just arbitrary symbols. There is historic context embedded in the imagery throughout the text. And if we're not considering the fact that this is a letter written to real people during a real time, we'll simply yank the letter out of its, its, its historical context and fail to grasp the actual theological significance of the symbols themselves. We don't want to miss that. It's been said, failure to consider the immediate historic context of Revelation's first century recipients has arguably resulted in some of the worst and harmful interpretations of the letter. We just need, to, at some level, get to grips with the history of, of, of what this letter, um, or when this letter is being written. In order to properly understand the apocalyptic imagery of Revelation, we need to do our utmost to understand how the seven churches to whom John was writing would have understood it. By the way, that's just hermeneutics 101. So when you're doing the work of interpreting scripture, you always need to begin by asking the question, who is this person writing to then? And then you ask the question, okay, well then what is God saying to us now? But you can't simply rip it out of its historical context. That's, that's bad Bible. It's bad Bible. We begin by considering. Now, you don't have to be a historian. You don't have to be a historic scholar by any means. But we might do well to employ some of the teachers that God has given to the body of Christ. People who can tell us a thing or two about the history the historical context of a letter like Revelation. Because once we begin to appreciate the rich cultural, political, and biblical associations connected to the imagery and various symbols used throughout Revelation, we realize that it's overly simplistic to simply categorize every verse or vision in one of two ways. This is the mistake we often make. If we don't consider the context, we can, number one, either look at every vision as a literal description of some future event, or conversely, we may look at every verse or vision as an encoded description of some character or occurrence that only a scholar some 2,000 years later can actually understand and write and sell books about. It's a very superficial way to interpret the symbolic meaning of the text. Finally, when we're aware of the fact that this is a letter we're reading, we begin to understand the historical, political, and biblical context of this ancient letter. Then we can begin to recognize the primary importance of its themes and symbols which are theological and experiential. The letter is being written not just to simply give data to people about God, but to actually say something deeply theological about Jesus and then evoke a response. That's the power of the imagery that's meant to actually stir something of our imagination, of our emotions. It's meant to actually grab us by the guts and invite us to experience something about the grandeur 
of our king, this living God. Um, I want to give you an example. An example and a book plug, actually. So I read a a few books in preparation for this this sermon series. Uh, Mostly because I've just been like, just slightly terrified to actually jump into this book and say something helpful and true and biblical about it. Um, So I, I don't... I don't know if I've ever studied or prayed as hard in preparation for a sermon series as I have done this one. You're welcome. <laughs> um, but I'm going to recommend this one right here. This is called The Theology of the Book of Revelation by Richard Bauckham. Um, coincidentally, Richard Bauckham was one of my adjunct professors when I was at seminary in London. He's a Brit, and he's absolutely brilliant. Um, I don't know if I've ever read anything by Richard Bauckham that didn't just challenge me intellectually. Um, so if you want a bit of a companion to, to read as we're going through this, this book, I'd recommend this one. It's a thin book, but it's very, very uh, dense. He wastes no words. But let me read to you just a little excerpt out of uh, Bauckham. He says, Consider, for example... The descriptions of the plagues of the seven trumpets, that's chapter 8, verses 6 through 9, verse 21, and the seven bowls, chapter 16, these form a highly schematized literary pattern which itself conveys meaning. Their content suggests, among many other things, the plagues of Egypt, which accompanied the Exodus, the fall of Jericho, to the army of Joshua, the army of locusts depicted in the prophecy of Joel, the Sinai theophany, the contemporary fear of invasion by Parthian cavalry, the earthquakes to which the cities of Asia Minor were rather frequently subject, and very possibly the eruption of Vesuvia, which had recently terrified the Mediterranean world. John has taken some of his contemporaries' worst experiences and worst fears of war and natural disasters, blown them up to apocalyptic proportions, and cast them in biblically elusive terms. The point is not to predict a sequence of events. The point is to evoke and to explore the meaning of the divine judgment which is impending on the sinful world. There's some Bacham for you. So that's what we're reading. An apocalyptic prophecy in the form of a circular letter written to the seven churches in the ancient province of Asia. It's an apocalypse, it's a prophecy, and it's a letter written to real people at a real time in history. How do we read it? Now, I've already alluded to some things. You may be already thinking, like, mm, how is he reading this? What's his theology? I'm going to figure out the pastor's take on Revelation. Trust me, you're not going to figure it out. I haven't figured it out, okay? We're just reading the book. How are we reading the book? How should we be reading the book? A few things. Number one, we read Revelation worshipfully. Something about the beauty, the grandeur of the imagery. It doesn't just stir up emotion. It stirs up 
reverence and awe. King Jesus, the lamb seated on the throne. It's meant to cause God's people to actually bow our heads in worship, to recognize the greatness of our God. He is the one who was, is, and will come. He is the almighty. And revelation should stir up our desire to worship God in all of his awe, his splendor and awe. Secondly, we must read Revelation missionally. It's meant to actually spur us on to action. We like to think, I often say, I often rant about how we, us Westerners or Portlanders or whatever you want to call us, we love to think. We love to be in our head and we read books and listen to podcasts and I'm for all of that because I'll never stop saying it. God is more than just an idea. He's not just a spiritual philosophy. The God of the Bible is a real living, breathing God. Well, he was breathing when he walked the earth. He's still a man in heaven, however that works. Um, But he's a God who's meant to be known and, and, and be known by, to be interacted with and to be worshiped and to be followed. And Jesus, he calls us to follow him, to be on mission in the world. He's ordained us, even commissioned us to be about his business, to be co-laborers with him in our city, in our families, in our relationships, all around us. And so we read Revelation, we should feel prompted to actually go someplace and to do something with what we're being shown. That's why John, one of the primary reasons why John writes the letter. Thirdly, we need to read Revelation with humility, great humility. You guys know that this particular book historically has proven to be relatively divisive within the church. You guys are aware of this, right? Like people get really passionate and sometimes pretty dang weird about their revelation theology. And it could split a church right in two. Where do you stand on the millennium? Where do you stand on the rapture? I don't know, I'm post, I'm pre, trib, that, and the other. And people can get like just really intense and unhelpful. Intense is fine, but intense with humility is much better. Let me list five legitimate ways of reading Revelation. You may not like or agree with several of them, but these aren't the rantings of like heretical theologians. These are legitimate ways of actually reading the text. They are, number one, the futurist. Futurists read the prophetic, the quote-unquote prophetic aspects as all going to be fulfilled in the future. Conversely, the preterist, the preterist reading of Revelation views all prophecy in Revelation as having been fulfilled within the generation of its original writing. So they believe it's prophetic, but prophecy that's already been fulfilled in the first century or so. Thirdly, the historic reading of Revelation. Historicists read Revelation as a detailed chronological map of history from the time it was written to the second coming of Christ. You could say that it's a bit of a combination of the futurist and the preterist reading, but they look at it specifically as this like map of chronological events unfolding. That is a way to read Revelation. Fourthly, the idealist. 
The idealist views revelation solely as symbolic pictures or timeless truths. For example, good triumphs over evil. This would probably be the one reading that I disagree with the most. It's true, good triumphs over evil, and there are true principles within the book, but I think it's much, much more than just timeless truths or proverbial sayings um, for us to live by. Fourthly, and this is probably where I lean the most, and that is fifth. Okay. Yep. The fifth one is it was called inaugurated eschatology. This views end times as having begun with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It views the prophecies of having been fulfilled and yet still being fulfilled with regards to God's kingdom still coming. So it's a bit of a, not either or, but and both. And then the sixth one is uh, called the eclectic reading, and that is simply a mixture of several approaches, which is probably where most of us land, whether we realize it or care to admit it or not. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12. It says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then when Jesus returns, we will see him face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I've been fully known. Uh, Last week, I was on the campus at WSU in Vancouver, and I was meeting with our club advisor, Lily and I, and uh, we kind of need him to like us and to like sign our paperwork so that we can apply for grants and, and reserve rooms on the campus. He's our club advisor. And uh, we're chatting about this and that, and we're trying to like, convince him, like, hey, keep being our club advisor, please. And he seemed like he was pretty keen, but he was, he was grilling us a little bit. And then he asked me this question. It's kind of random. He said, hey, where do you stand, young earth or old earth? I was like, oh, snap. <laughs> Part of me is thinking, like, why are you even asking me? Like, what? This has nothing to do with what we're talking about right now. Now, mind you, I needed him to, like, keep liking us. So I said, well, basically, I don't believe that the earth isn't not older than it is young. (laughs) And I just completely just, (laughs) and and he saw right through it. And he was like, Oh, okay, I have no idea what that means. And I'm like, okay, good. Like, can we, can we talk about something else now? Because I didn't want to get into it. I'm like, look, I just, look, I love Jesus. You love Jesus. We're trying to do this thing on campus. Like, can we not get into this now? He was so gracious and he kind of laughed. I think he was probably just messing with me a little bit and said, you know what? Um, in the last 20 years, uh, my, my understanding of God's word has, has changed a lot and in some ways quite drastically. Um, he says, as long as you and I can agree that the main thing remain the main thing and other things we can debate about and, and, and hopefully in a way that's actually mutually upbuilding. And he was so gracious, so humble. This is an older man. And eventually later on in the conversation, he, he came out and he said, look, I'm, I'm a young earther. I'm like, okay, I'm old earth. And I've got reasons for that. 
theological reasons, not so much like scientific reasons. Although I think he may have been coming more from a scientific perspective. Um, and I'm assuming he used to be an old earther and his view changed. My point is, guys, as we're reading through Revelation, we need to come at it with great humility. There are certain things that we do not need to divide over. We do not need to divide as brothers and sisters in Christ over pre- or post-trib theology. We just don't. That would be to royally miss the point. I love what St. Augustine said. I don't know if he said it or not. He's attributed with saying, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. So let's go through this book with great humility, keeping the main thing, the main thing, who is Jesus. Jesus crucified, Jesus the living one, Jesus who sits on the throne. And we can debate as well, as long as it's mutually upbuilding. Fourthly, worshipfully, missionally, with great humility. Fourthly, expectantly. Expectantly. You know, Revelation begins and ends with the promise that he is coming. He said, I'm, behold, I'm coming. You know that word, behold, he is coming? The Greek is, it's present indicative, meaning not that he is going to come, he is coming. He is in the process of coming. And he comes on the clouds. Another great example of apocalyptic imagery. Is he actually gonna come surfing on a cloud? Possibly he could. I think that would be to misinterpret the apocalyptic usage of the symbol. In the Bible, from Old Testament to New, the cloud is always meant to represent the presence, the manifest presence of God. Jesus is coming on the presence or with the presence of God. He is coming. We must read expectantly. The book ends by saying, Lord Jesus, come. Like, come now. Come yesterday. Come in this situation, this moment, in our reality, at this point in time, in our city, in this church, in our lives. Lord Jesus, come. I was here last night praying up a storm. (laughs) Something about praying in an old church building with the lights really low just brings out the Pentecostal in a guy. (laughs) Maybe. I was praying, Lord Jesus, come. And that would make a spectacular sort of end of the series. <laughs> right? Yeah. Lord Jesus, come. That'd be phenomenal. Thirdly, why are we reading? What is it? How do we read this book? And why? Why read this book? John has given this incredible revelation of Jesus to share with his fellow first century brothers and sisters. It was given to inspire them towards hope and encouragement and to even challenge them to remain faithful to their king, Jesus, even if it cost them their life. Revelation isn't just for bored Christians. It's not just for those who 
who can't get enough of their click, what I call clickbait theology. It's when you go online and it's that sort of YouTube video or that blog post that takes you maybe about an hour max to get through and it's just entertaining enough to keep you coming back. Be careful with that stuff. There's a lot of just shabby, superficial theology on the internet. And please hear me right. I'm not anti-YouTube. I'm not anti-blogs. But there's some things that take more than an hour to unpack. Which is why I, I recommend picking up a good book. And after you've done this one, come to me. I have a couple more that I can recommend you. Get the various perspectives. Take your time. Allow someone who's actually put their thoughts in a matter of a few hundred pages and resist the temptation to just keep going back to that one YouTube channel that's like really entertaining, but maybe not the best theology out there. The final book of the Bible, the revelation of Jesus Christ, it's about Jesus. Go figure. The revelation of Jesus Christ, the opening words of the book, the book is about Jesus. And its intent is the conversion of our imaginations. Or as Bauckham puts it, it's to purge and to refurbish the Christian imagination so that we might know him better. Jesus, the one who loves us and has set us free and has made us into a people who serve him with joy, who stand in the gap for others, who lay our lives down for the world around us just as he has laid his life down for us. This is why we're reading Revelation. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests, to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So this morning, um, obviously I've done my best to set the stage. Oh my goodness, there's so much more that we could have delved into this morning, just in those first eight verses. Um, one of the things that I love about Revelation is that it's packed full of what I call theological hyperlinks. As you're reading, you'll notice like, oh, that, that was Ezekiel right there. He's quoting from Ezekiel. Oh, and that was definitely an allusion to Zechariah verse chapter 12. And obviously, Exodus 19 right there, we're a kingdom of priests. And all throughout the Bible, it's just like hyperlink, hyperlink. It's like, it's like getting lost on Wikipedia. It's just like there is no end to the, to the layers it's like the matrix. But here's what I want us to end with this morning. We mustn't get lost in the, just the, 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 the mind maze that can be revelation and miss the point. Is it fun to get into theology? Heck yeah, I love it. It's super cool. I did my undergrad in, in math I love solving puzzles. I love it. It's like crack. <laughs> Revelations like theological crack. <laughs> Tweet it. It's great. It's 
fun. It's the best. Can't get enough. But we mustn't miss the point. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ who loves us, who's freed us by spilling his own blood, and who has made us into a kingdom, a family, priests. What's a priest? We've all been ordained to be salt and light in this world. This isn't just a book to entertain Christians. This is a book to awaken us, to remind us of who our great king is and his awesome victory that he has won on the cross. Let's not miss the trees for the forest. Or is it the other way around? Yeah. Whatever, you guys, you guys know. It's about Jesus. Can we stand together, please? You're now listening to Grace City Portland.